Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. Tonight's share will be when a Hasidah splits. What halachas are there? Hasidah splits? Wow, that's something new. No, no, no. It's actually very old. Let's start in Poland, where I come from Poland. Most lot of Kal Yisrael comes from original. I always say to people, speak slowly to me. I'm Polish. The great Rebbe of all of Poland, there was only one Rebbe who was really all of Poland, was the name Elimelech. He was the entire Poland with his Hasidim. And then the Chayzef and Lublin, Bechayev, split from him. And then from the Chayzef and Lublin who split, the Yidah and started Pshischa. From Pshischa who split, Ishbitz. And each split was, each tzaddik had their own way. And what are the halachas? We're going to have Rabbi Zalman Graus. He's a renowned Dayan, Toyan, a Mechabes Farim in America. Everybody, maybe the most renowned boyer in America. He's going to speak according to halacha. Can you throw out a child from school in the middle of the year? Because his father changed Rebbe's. Is a, is a contract legally binding? Parents sign a contract. Well, guess what? There's one little problem. They signed a contract with the school. Who's missing from the contract? You got it, the child. Well, can they bind the child? You know, they don't own him. Can a wife be fired because of her husband's affiliation? Her husband becomes a chassid to a driver. Can you fire the wife? And here's Rabbi Grouse. When a child is involved, there's a lot of emotion involved. People use it as a means to fight other person. And that is not an acceptable way. Oh, the biggest title in our world is Mashiach. And who is getting this title? Who look who is getting this title? Not the biggest Savik, the the our next guest will be Yair Brook. He's a labor and employment attorney who represented Babov, and he's going to discuss how Babov acted when they had quite an acrimonious split, Babov 45 and Babov 48. And he's going to discuss legally, can you throw out kids? You know, constitutionally, you have the First Amendment, and which is religious freedom, versus the concept of discriminating because of somebody's religion. Here's Yair Brook. Babov did not ask those girls to leave, even though... There were many differences of opinion between the two groups. And not only that they did not ask those girls to leave, but when the school year ended and those girls wanted to come back the following year, Bubba allowed them to come back. Furthermore, when that uh, other group uh, was able to establish their own girls' schools, some girls chose to stay and continue attending that school. Some of those girls even decided to uh, to stay until they graduated, and Bubba had no issue and no problem with that. Since there's so much history besides Allah in this, we went to the premier Jewish historian, Rebel Wine, the renowned Rav, author, historian, and lecturer, and he's going to be talking about how ferocious the fights were. Chisri itself, the older Rebbein, they took Chisri to the entire, in front of the Aftarov, they wanted to throw him out of the Jewish people. Rebbe Eger went to become a Chosid, and they, they say uh, uh, his father... We're going to have another noted Jewish historian, Yehuda Geber. He has Jewish History Soundbites podcast, gets over a million hits a year. He does takes people to all the sites in Europe and the Mukaimis Akadashim, etc. A historical overview of splits in Hasidus. And he's going to say, nope, you never saw. Hasidus in the olden days, they were never like today, where, you know, kids thrown out and families broken up. 
It's going to speak about why things have changed. Very fascinating. Have we ever seen a, a split where kids get thrown out of schools? Where it's look, if you join the other Hasidus, your kids won't be ever allowed to talk to you again. Your brothers or brothers-in-law will never be allowed to come to your simchas or talk to you. If we catch them talking to you, they'll get thrown out. Um, your store will be boycotted and closed down if somebody goes in and chops. Have we ever seen where it's basically if you go there, it's like you have in effect become like. This is we are Malik. I mean, I don't know what we, we, you're dead. You're dead to us. Has, has anything like this ever happened before? By a split within a Hasidus, like by a Yerusha or, or one of these splits that we mentioned, it, as far as I know, we haven't. And here's Mordechai Weinberger, the well-known psychotherapist, columnist. He's going to discuss about how power of shaming a child. Shame is one of the core emotions that will ruin everything in a person, from their business to their marriage to their children to even their own very life. By the way, the power of shame is so great. Let me share with you just a story I heard. Can't tell you it's true. You have maybe Chesidim will tell me whether, you know, because it's Mipiyah Shmua. The great base Yisrael. Ger Rebbe, who was for many decades in Eretz Yisrael, close to you know, 30 years he was Rebbe there. He escaped Poland during the Holocaust. His wife was killed, along with his son, his daughter, and his grandchildren. He came to Eretz Yisrael, right, together with his father, the Emreimus, and his, his brothers, his siblings. And he became a chassan. He got remarried. He, he got engaged. While he was Meshadach, after he did the Shadach, but before he got married, he found out that the woman he was going to marry could not have children. Imagine this. He's now childless, in effect, because they were killed, the children and grandchildren. But he said, I won't be Mavaza, a Jewish Medal. And he married somebody, and he never had children the rest of his life, the Beis Yisrael. Beis Yisrael knew the power of shaming somebody. Wow. Just a stalling to a story to what uh, Rabbi Mordechai Weinberger discussed. So this is our uh, program for the week, and it should be really fascinating. But before that, I'd like to say a vert on the Parsha. This week's Parsha tells us the story of Dina. And Shechem, and it was the first time Abbas Yisrael was violated, something that sadly happened thousands of years, you know, for thousands of years by, you know, a guy, a Shegetz. And what does Shimon and Levi do? They go out and they, Shimon and Levi Achim, Klechamos, Mecheri Seim, they kill all of Shechem. And what does Yaakov Avinu say to them? Icharta, I see. You embarrassed me, you endangered me. And what did they say? Hakizaina, Yase, Achiseinu. And Yaakov doesn't respond. What's the debate? Here's an interesting thought. They say, Hakizayna yase achayseinu, lashen asid. What? It's nothing asid. This happened already. It's all over. Everybody was killed. Everybody's dead. Shechem's dead. Chamar's dead. They're all dead. What's Hakizayna yase? I think the pshat is when, when somebody's violated, they have children, they were molested, etc. And they very often, the victims think it's their fault. If the child thinks, look, if it happened to me by somebody else, they must be right and I must have done something. Or when it's a girl, I must have acted, you know, inappropriately, etc., etc. And when we're silent, we affirm that they're really wrong. So what does Shimon and Levi say? Ha-kizayna if we stay silent, we will be making her. We are now turning her into a Zaina. We are confirming her fears that she did something wrong and she is the, the cause of it and she is the Zaina. Kal Yisrael believes, halachically, hashkafically, silence is an action. 
In American law, silence is not an action. In Yiddishkeit, silence is an action. Besides the concept everybody heard of shtika kaida, but lamashal, I mean, just a raya that silence is an action. What does the Gemara say in Sait Yeralef Amaralef? Amr Ebchiyah Barabba Amr Ebsimai Shlai Shehayubai Seetza Bilam Iyavi Yisrei The Eitza of Pari to kill Kalaben Zachar Yaritash Lechu He says Iyuv Sheshasak Nidin Biyasurim I mean, he was Shaisek. Shaisek is Sheva Altasa. Why did he get Yasurim? He didn't do anything. And the answer is no. When we look the other way, when we're silent, silence is an action. <laughs> you say, okay, come on, this is really drush. You know, Taisvis and Brachas and Davchafalaf, Amid Beis, what does he bring? He brings from Rabbeinu Tam. Imagine you're in the middle of Shman Esrei, and the Chazan says, Baruchu. So you're silent, and you're Mahar Baruchu. What does Rabbeinu Tam say? He says, if Shemeya. Ka'ina, it's half sucker if you're shaisik and continue davening. Don't don't li- don't be silent. Your silence is an action of half sucker. Imagine that. So I mean, la halacha. Besides shtika kaida, this is already the chelik aleph of mishnabura. When you're silent, you did something. So when somebody was molested or hurt or damaged, and you turn the other way, no, it's not you didn't get involved. You're going to be needin like Eiv. Shtika is an action. When you should stand up, we don't believe in, the Klaus Yisrael does not believe in Kitty Genovese, you know, the, the bystander who walks by and does nothing. What does the Torah tell us? When we see something wrong, speak up. Don't affirm it. By being silent, you're joining hands with somebody who's a, a perpetrator. Vart for the Parsha. Before we go to our guests, let's go to the riddles of the week. Okay, so in the beginning of the parsha, the Yasem es Ashvachais ves Yaldeim Rishayna es Leia ves Yaladeim Achreinim. Why he was afraid? Esav would come, right? Viko Emal Banim. He was going to kill them all. The Medrash says he wanted to suck the blood out of with his neshicha. That's how that's how twisted Esav was. Here's the problem. What does he do? He puts the Shvachais Yaladeim first, and Leia Yaladeim Achreinim. Rashi says Achrein Achrein Chaviv. The ones he wanted to save. How could you do that? What does the Mishnah say? What does the Gemara say? See this way, right? If you have a, a group of people Give us one of them and we'll kill him. Are you allowed to give up one person to save the rest? What's the halacha? You don't save one. You don't give over one to save others. Right, we don't choose. What is he doing over here? He's saying, let's put the the those who are less important to me first. And we'll save the good ones. What? You don't say you don't choose one over the others. How is Yaakov allowed to do that? That is riddle number one. Here is riddle number two. This is really a good one. What does it say? Rashi says, Famous Rashi. Where was Dina? Put her in a box. Esav shouldn't see it. Yaakov was Nenash. That he kept her from Esav. What does it say? Leia cried for years and years. Why? From a bechi, Shema Tipal Eitzel Oisea Russia. Maybe she would fall. And what does it say? The Kaddish Baruch Hu Chazal say, Shema Tfilasa. He'll listen to her. Umana Miyachev. 
It was considered a, a shvach. Well, her, her, her cries were considered a bechi and a tzfila. So the mother was nishtabach, that she didn't want to fall into the hands of the Russia. What is Yaakov criticized for? For keeping the daughter from the Russia. Okay, this is drush. Now we'll say more than that. Halacha. What's the halacha? The Shulchan Aruch says in two places, in Eben Ezenun, in Hochashidachim. What happens if somebody makes a shidduch? And post the shidduch, the boy becomes a, he's makalkal b'maisav. Same thing in Yeridei, in Reish Ches, in Hilchaz Nedarim, because they used to sign Tznoyim, they would make a neder, that if, if the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, that if he was makalkal, the Shudach, Meshudach as Maisev, you're allowed to be Machsev. If you find that he afterwards he becomes a Russia, you're allowed to, you certainly don't want to enter into such a Shadach. By the way, if you look, let's say, in the Pesachet Tshuva, in, in Reish Chav Ches Mem Gimel, he brings from the Neide Bihu, that seems this happens sometimes, people would make Tanayim, etc. He says, if somebody becomes a Mummer, right, or it becomes a Porutz Larayas, a Bishara Veris, the Nishmal of An Maisimachuarim Harbei, he says, then what's the Allah of Adir Larabi Chayzai? He says, if one act, random act happened, you don't. What do we know about Esav? He would, he was a Chazal say, he was Ma'ananashim Tachas Baleim, he was a Mummer Lavai Dezara, he's called Yisrael Mummer. What? Is Rashi thinking when he says Yaakov is Nenash that he should have given Dina to Esav when Leah was Nishtabach that she cried her eyes out that she didn't want to fault him? When the Shulchan Aruch says in two places that if a Meshulach is Makalko Babaisav, you're allowed to be Chayza even if you made a Shvua. This is our second riddle of the week. If you get the right, we will play next week the winners of the riddles. We always give a prize to the winners. To leave a message, call 732 806 8700 and press number two, or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Let's go to our guests. Joining us from Borough Park is Rabbi Zalman Grouse. He's a machaber of many svarim. He was a magachir for many years, I believe, in Bells. He's written Bari Vishema and Tolchas Mominus, many krachim, Birchas Halechem, Rushuyais Ve'erevin. One day we hope to get Rabbi Grouse back to discuss this. Discuss Erevin, Erevin, Borough Park, Flatbush, Manhattan, etc. would be an honor. He's arguably, debatable, the most um, respected boyer and dayan in America today. Certainly tie-in, etc. Welcome, Rabbi Grouse. Good morning. Rabbi Grouse, let me give you a theoretical situation. I have a, 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 a Hasidist thoughts of yeshiva, and as often happens, there is a machloikis in the Hasidus. Listen, let's face it, Rabbi Grouse, all of Hasidus started with machloikis. The Baal Shem, when he started, was a huge Hasidus. When, uh, pick about any Hasidus, going back, you know, all the way to the Baal Shem, there have been many, many, many splits. When, 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 the, when, when Yida Kaddish left Lublin, it was a whole thing. When the Ishbitz left Kotsk, it was a huge to-do. So that's what they do. They split, and, and they keep getting better, how they put it that way, okay? So there's a split, and... Some of the kids in the school, their parents believe that their, their path to, to, to Avaidus Hashem is through the other Rebbe. And the yeshiva says, look, anybody who parents go to the other Rebbe, we're going to uh, ask the child to leave the school. So my first question is, here you have a kid, he's, he's seven years old, 
He doesn't know from anything. Satma, Bell, Bubba, Ger, He's just a seven-year-old. He just wants to play with his friends. They come, they take him, they throw him out. And let's assume for a minute that throwing out a boy out of school can have consequences, severe consequences. I mean, there are many kids go off the derech. There are kids who become, they remember it their entire lives, the embarrassment, etc. Let's just take that for an assumption. We'll have a psychologist to talk about that. So if you were representing the child, or if I was representing the child, I would say, listen, what, what right does a yeshiva have to damage a child? What's his eschuldig? And if you do the kid damage, you know, do you have a din of a, of a roidif of the child? Maybe a roidseach, maybe a, a mazik. Or on the other hand, do you have a right to say, listen, we built a franchise here, and our job is to protect our franchise. I mean, it was just a big lawsuit with Apple where somebody figured out a way how to be on their platform without paying um, the 30% fee that they charge every app that's on their platform and they threw them off the platform and it went to court and it's being litigated and the, the judge said, look, you're a for-profit mm-hmm. institution, you have a right to do it. How do we, do we see Yeshiva like Apple? Do we see it differently? Do, is, are there any rights for the child? Give us some, some, some of your thoughts with your many, many decades of experience. Okay, uh, you start with history and let's go a little bit back. Uh, there's a conus from Tzia Ben Gamle. Tzia Ben Gamle was one of the Kanim Gedolim, based on And he made a conus, and Kali Sol accepted that every city, even in Chutzlores, must have a commentary, must have a, a school for children and to teach them. And let me tell you, Mamra <coughs> Musger, that uh, history, historians point out that this was the biggest tax at that time by, by, the, by the Eden, because uh, usually a child, uh, a small child at that time, used to go work, and he brought uh, home money. And instead, you force the father not only not let him to go work, you force him to learn and pay taxes for the city to keep this child education, to give him education not only for him, but for all the poor kids of the city. And this system by Eden went on and all the time. There's no 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 exception. Cole Israel accepted this. And it's no different what you start to say about Hasidus. This has nothing to do. All the kids learned in the same shtetl or the city learned kids was no different amateur from Isnagdim for Hasidim or for uh, for uh, what kind of Hasidus. This was one cheder in, in all the issue was one yeshiva. People went to this rabbi, to that rabbi. This has nothing to do with the kids. In our time, unfortunately, as many chiyuve hatzibur. Chiyuve hatzibur means that usually a person himself cannot, person himself cannot bring korbonus, all the korbonus hatzibur. Person himself cannot memane a shofet in a basin. The city it has to be united in some ways that they should memane all chiyuve hatzibur. I'll tell you an extreme example. If a father cannot circumcise his kids, he's sick, he's in hospital, then the person, the tzibur, has a chiyuv to circumcise him. Or a kedushin and that's the test, right? Yeah, yeah, simple. Story, Gmar, with, with Rabbi Yeshua ben Gamos, Baba Basra, that's chaf, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in our time, as I said, in New York, for example, is no orthodox unity to make a person or to make anything what has chiyuv of tzibur. But 
this doesn't mean that nobody has the hilf. If you are capable to do, if you are capable to mal a child, that is, the father is in hospital, you have to do that. It's only the chiyot tzibur or bezin is when no yachid is able to do it. Always when a yachid is able to do that, he has to do that. To speak to our case, I'm not talking when there is a contract. We'll get to it maybe. Maybe I don't know if this is a question. If there is a contract in the middle of the year, that's a contract question. We may get to it. But without a contract, without we put aside the contract, every yochid, what has the capability, he has an obligation for the child from the Tukonosetship and Gamle, and he has to take in the child. Specifically, when the child pays the money, when the situation is there. And uh, to say, we know the old from the custody fight, that's going on in all Botadinim. And more than that, the first custody fight, the recorded custody fights in this world, is, was by Shlema Melech. And in the prime phase, he looks like an innocent. Everybody wants to have the child. But when you're going further, you, you read the Psukim further, when she was offered this child, no, she don't want. That means the fight is not about the custody of the child. The fight is that the other person should not have. And this very always, when a child is involved, there's a lot of emotion involved. People use it as a means to fight other persons. And that is not an acceptable way. Uh, I must tell you, uh, beside that, it is, in, I don't know how much it is related to it, but it's in some way it's related. In the case of Hacherem... Wait, Rabbi Grass, I want to underline what you just said. You brought out a very, very powerful point. You said... In custody fights, the children are often used as pawns and as tools to get back at the other person, and the custody fight is just a, a play rehearsal how to get back at the other person. Oh, the biggest title in our world is Mashiach. And who is getting this title? Who Look who is getting this title. Not the biggest Savik. Okay. What I start to say, we have... There is a Paltu Goen, what Bish uh, Yosef and the Dakemoisha brings from a few places. But Allah is not so. Paltu uh, Goen says that if somebody is the best. Shilam Shilamadala, this is in your day. But yeah, in Hashemishpit, uh, yeah. this is in a few places. Yeah. And uh, that if the Bezim puts somebody in Kherim, then you're not, you not circumcise his kids. You throw out the kids of the Besasefer and, and so further. But Dalach is not so. Dalach is not definitely not so. It's not accepted. In the Dachroinim, the Mephorshim ask tremendous question. How you can, because punish the kid, punish the child when it's a chivun bezin to be malad. Tell you only an, an, an story, a true story. It looks like a joke, but it's a true story. The Paltigoyan says if you put somebody in Chelem... You could throw you the kids out of school. You could, you could not bury their children. You cannot bury them. You could, you could throw the wife out of Shul, etc. Oh, if you threw out the wife of... From the Shul. In, in, in Shin Lamed Al-Vav. In Shin Lamed Al-Vav, it says you could throw the wife out of Shul. Okay. Uh, that's a different story. You see in the Besiyosev itself, it said that's not accepted. I, I'm saying, but that's what the, that's what he, that's what the Shulchan says. Okay, but the Paskin uh, say that's not accepted. I'm telling that she had a fight with her husband. 
And the Ralph put a hair on the husband because he's not obeying, he's not paying, he's not doing his duties to the wife. Uh-huh. And he quoted this Rafaltegor. Right. And what is the result? That she has a fight with the husband, and the husband is not is not Sayyid's dinner, then is she that she has she a fight with the husband. She gets thrown out of show. She gets thrown out of show. I understand. Then she ran, and ran back to the rope and said, what am I doing? What, what did yeah. I do wrong? Yeah. I, I wanted to help me. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back to this issue. The issue is that is if the case is when is no contract. Besides that, in middle of the year. Wait, 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 Robert, it's Robert Grouse, right? You're going too fast for me. You're saying so if the, if there is no contract and they and the school wants to throw out children, right? So then, if you were the dying, you would say that since. The chiv on every person, the chiv of Yeshua ben Gamla, a tzibur has to. Well, the tzibur doesn't do it, so you have to do it. But Kalbachayma, you can't throw the kid out. That's what you. Would, that's yeah. how you. Now, I just want right. to. Very interesting. But here's here's the other side of that is is you brought there a paltiel going that if somebody's not a tzayis dina, you could throw the kids out of school. So it's really and the shulchan aruch paskins that way, but it's happily disputed. The taz there's I believe three opinions. The taz says young children could be expelled, but older children not. The sam says. You could expel children of any age so that the light Sayyidina doesn't have the schus of having his kids in school. But more, afterwards, the Ksav uh he says it's only if it will cause the Sayyidina to listen. Exactly like you say, it's a pawn. But if it's just a way to strike back at them and you know they're not going to listen, you're not going to do it as a punitive or a protective measure. That's how. So I imagine when you're saying la we don't hold like the machab. You're saying we pass we pass more like the ksav saif and aruch Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's what I meant. I didn't want it to go this way. Okay. Okay. Because we are not talking somebody that was muhrim by a bezin. But I would say even if muhrim by bezin, you cannot use it as a tool. You have to use it as a way to force him or influence him, but not lemaise simply as a punishment and the child child okay. will be out now, and you know sir, that you pra- don't achieve anything with that. Sir Rabbi Grass, if I was on the other side of this Dintaira, that's, that's my job here, and you were the dying, I would say, on shoulders to the Mechubedek Bezin, I would say, we're not throwing these children out because we're angry or they're pawns, but if we have one Hashkafa Sachayim. And you're following a Rebbe that not only does he have a different Hashkafa Sachayim, but he's misnagged to our Rebbe. So if you put a kid like that in the class, he's going to say, hey, your Rebbe's a garnished. I don't want my kids to hear that. I sent my kids to picky face, to Racham Strisk. I picked to pick some benign chassidim because I want them to become Racham Strisk chassidim. I don't want them to hear from another kid in the class, ah, your rebbe's a garnish. That's terrible for my child. So if I'm the head of the school, that would be my response. What would you, as the dying, what would you say? You touch a different issue. But this, this is sometimes justified. Nobody is able to have a moisted and the kids have a fight in the moisted who is the right Rebbe, who is the wrong Rebbe, even though that's not something that should be discussed for small children. But if this causing a fight and this causing a chaos, is no question that this is a justified issue. I'm only talking when this is not the issue. When I, this is talking simply when you want to have revenge or you want to have a fight or promote your power in shul and you use the kids as a tool. Okay. This is objective fight. This has nothing to do with the father. Sometimes without the father. Sometimes without the... I was a Magichir in, in a yeshiva. was an impartial yeshiva. And I will tell you the most time 
of the time, the Bokhara was fighting who is the biggest god. Because it was not an, an affiliated to yeshiva, it was an impartial yeshiva, and one was this, from this season, was that season. It is something what kids have a, a lot of occupation with that. But it didn't, it did not disturb this learning of the system from the yeshiva. In the leisure time, they didn't have what to do, they discussed it. Like, like Bokhara and yeshiva, discussing who know, knew better to learn. That is a that is a bocherish young uh, young. Uh, it, uh, I would I, I don't know how to express this, but this is an enjoyment on an issue from kids. Not always it is something severe. Okay. If it, if it is a severe issue, then yes, yes, that's a justified uh, reason sometimes. So, I mean, the other side of that, now let me take the other side of the argument. I would say that it's true that my kid talks about his Rebbe, that he's the biggest, and it's not your Rebbe. But wouldn't you say, before you throw a kid like that out, you have to sit the kid down and the parents down and say, listen, your kid's here on one condition, that this does not become an issue. But to do it sort of in a blanket way, you have no right to do that. I want you to give my kid a warning. I'm going to talk to my kid, and I'm going to tell my kid, you're never allowed to talk to the fact that I'm West Satmar and you're going to Lubavitch. You're never going to talk about it. I'm just using that as a metaphor. But can you just do it like carte blanche? Say, hi, there's 20 kids in the school are from the other Rebbe, you roll out. I mean, are you allowed to do it? If you're the dying, how would you respond to that? No question about that. Sure. Every, every punishment and ocean Everything what a child does, and a child does a lot of things that is very disturbing. It's sometimes disturbing in the middle of learning or kids. Kids are, kids are do many, many things. And there is a way how to control kids. The way, the first way is not to throw out. You, you, I understood from your question is if this is made not to the child should be forced to do in, a, in to, to to hold in the frame of the the school or not to disturb other kids. It is an issue where the parents. You to ask my question is about the parents. If the parents do something against the ch- the school's rules, what is the if you are able to throw out the child? That answer is no. If the child does something against the rules. It's like other rules. It's not this rule. is not an exceptional rule. Right. It's more severe okay. than other rules of the yeshiva. But they would have it's to. Coming late. It is coming late. But you have to warn. The, so you'd have to warn the children first and say, look, if they're Definitely. disturbing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And do you think, like Rabbi Grouse, what Rabbi Grouse, what you're saying now? is sort of you think would be accepted halacha or is it a chiddush when you're saying everybody has a right to be achiv to be mechanas kids it's, it goes on the yachid too you have no right to start. you think that, you think that the arach would be accepted halacha in a bezin I think so I, I don't see why not let, let me tell you say everybody in fact is the, all about the dinim are mechayv fathers to pay tuition, even though in uh, because in Alachi said it's chayv lametoyre, that is a chayv. In the same thing is on everybody that is an accepted chiyu. There is maybe we'll get to it maybe later. I don't know if you are interested to hear, but maybe it's it's a difference between boys and girls. We'll get to it if uh, you have a yeah. You are interested that's, that's how, yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay, but now continue. Before I, oh, let's talk about that. Would girls be different? Or would you say that since there's a person who's bechuyif to teach their daughters the halachas that are negayah to them, right? Everybody holds that. There's also a chiyav talmud on a girl. Uh, she has to know halachas. 
whatever, the, all the halachas that are in the game, ner, chala, etc. Tyrus HaMishpach, I mean, clearly there's a chiyav to mechanic girls in their halachas, right? I would go further than that. I would say that the Tkhanas of Shia Ben Gamle was at that time for boys. No question, was not the Tkhanas was not for girls. But with the time, in our time, it was Kiblu Aleim, the Choyve. It's clearly so. Well, we cable this Choyve for girls as boys. There is no place in this world where Yidin didn't build a, a Moisad for girls. So if I'm a, if I'm a, if I go to bed and I'm a father and I say, listen, you know, uh, I don't want to pay for my daughter's schooling. There's no chiyav alamid bebitei tariki lelim dei tiflus, and you would have died. And, and how would the bezdin paskin? All but the dinim, all but the dinim is I'm chayav a father to pay tuition for a girl. Okay, so let me. They may say they may say not at the same age. They may say, boys, you you chiyav. Until uh, 19, and he she will be at 17 or something like that. Okay, so let me let me continue then the discussion. Okay, now let's say they signed the contract, right? And I'll and I'll 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 read you the language of the contract. Okay. No. Um, to foster and preserve these important values, the Anhala of whatever the name of the school is, reserves the right to determine what is the best interest of our educational system and well-being of our systems, okay? Uh, and therefore, a child whose parent affiliates, uh, affiliates, whose parent affiliates themselves with or supports a group that expresses disrespect and contempt towards whatever the, the, the Rebbe of that Maiset is, has no place in the Chinuch network of that my said, it does, that doesn't change anything because we're saying that if the child behaves and doesn't say anything, they would still not have a right to do anything to the child. Is that correct? I'll, I'll tell you an example. I'll tell you an example. Yeah. A wife, a, a mother of kids, wants to get a get. Or, in other way, she doesn't, not because she wants to get a get. She wants that the father should not have visitations. And they make an agreement. It happens every day. They make an agreement. The father gives up the kids. He won't have visitations. And uh, he doesn't have to pay support. The end of the day, the best, all the Botadin in Paskins, and that's in the Paskins in the, in the previous times, not from, from today, that this agreement is not in effect. Why? Because the child is a party to it. He didn't sign. He didn't have a representative in this contract. She may, she may say that I will pay all the needs of the child. And then if she claims support for the child, then he may have a counterclaim against the, the mother you obligated yourself to pay. If, let's say, for example, she obligated herself to pay, but she doesn't have another money. Then he has to pay for the child. And even the visitation, she cannot give up visitations for the child. He has a heel to see the kids. The kids have a right to see this father. And this is not a contract, not a con not something that is contractable. It's not your, your point is, let me just have a, your point is, whenever there's a third party involved, such as a child, right, you need all three parties to become party to the contract. Since mm -hmm. a child cannot become party to the contract, they can decide whatever they want among themselves, but none of them have the right to abrogate the rights of the child. 100%. 100%. Yes. I don't mean to say that the child has to be indefinitely in this school. If there is other schools available for the child at the end of the year, what is not making a big harm for the kids, maybe this is an individual question. Okay. In, in general, is the right for the kids is a right for himself. 
It has nothing to do with the father or the mother. Even if you say Yosemite has the rights, or if it's not the right of the mother. Let's say it's not the right of a wife, not the right of a mother. A mother is, is in case an apitropis. But the apitropis cannot do wave his the right of a kid. Right. And there is a, a, two parents can't agree uh, unanimously to kill a child, right? No okay, so let me read one last paragraph that I, I want to discuss with you as a dying. In case of a dispute or disagreement between the school and the parents, a Rav or Bezdin shall be consulted and be authorized to resolve the matter. The Rav or, Be the Rav or Bezdin shall be chosen by the Anhala of the school. Uh, the submission of the dispute to the Rav or Bezdin as set forth shall be the exclusive method of resolving the dispute. I, I sent you this language. Now, does, does the school then have a right, basically, to say, based on this agreement, we can go to whoever we want, we can have an ex parte hearing, that means in English, that means without the other person ever knowing about it, and this anonymous Rav, anonymous Bezdin, issues a psaq without the other person having any right. Now, that's what the contract says. How logically do we recognize that? Here's two issues what to talk. One issue, what I said before, that the child... Right, we agree, that, yes, we understood that. So regardless, the child... It's not binding as far as the child's concerned. That we've established. Now let's talk... Yeah. Yeah. If this is possible to agree, call tonight should be moment, moment time, but to agree that a unanimous, it is, it's, to me it looks like an asmachta, it doesn't, how do I know, there is, a, I'll tell you another thing, there is, in the past game is a, is a dispute, I may say, if we have a dispute, then your father will be the, the dying, even your father, but I cannot say you will be the dying, you hear me? Yeah. That is, I may say the burden of proof is of, on me, but you will be the dying, that is something is far-fetched. We don't find this. These Nachroinim would say that this doesn't work. For example, I'll tell you a particular example, what, is, what we had a few times in the entire, we have in Allah, when I buy a house, and I say, uh, who will be the Shammai? I, I buy a house, but we, we cannot agree on the price. We say, you know what? Who Moshe will tell what the price is, I buy it. Specifically in good or all good, let's say one partner wants to buy the other partner. Then we designate a person what the price will be. We had it, in fact, and it is mentioned in the post in such a thing. We have, what price you will feel fair, I agree with that. And the post can say that is not, it's not something what is psychic. It's not something with the same... Davashayinim Asuyim. Can person says, I agree to pay for your course the rest of your life. I mean, uh, something that has no limit, that has no thing, the Rambam holds you. Not a here, it has a, here it has a limit. I will say we, we rely on Moshe, or Yankel. That is fine. Moshe and Yankel will say that is the price, that is a double Asuyim. Because Moshe will estimate objectively, even if it's your current, I may say that. But I cannot say on yourself. I will rely on you. The same thing, I cannot say, I can say a Bezden, but I cannot say a Bezden, you will choose and I won't be there. I will prove anything. I will know that this is true. I will know what who this Bezden is. Maybe you three boys in the yeshiva, three Haber mules, or maybe nobody. I don't right. think, I, I didn't make a research about that. And uh, I don't know what the answer is, but on top of my head, it's, I would it say... It does not seem binding. It's not It's less than that. It's a smacht. It's something but there's no, no teeth how to touch it. Now, let me ask you another question. Let's say you have a wife who's a teacher at the school, and her husband gets into an argument with Anhala. 
Well, he joins another Rebbe, right? Can they say, listen, we're firing you. Your husband has a different Rebbe. And she says, look, I'm not a Chroya. What? what Rebbe my husband goes to, could you fire a, a woman from a, 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 from a job in such a situation? Okay. Halakhically, uh, let's say when there is no contract. It's no contract because if it's a contract, I cannot fire you even if I have a tenant. I cannot fire a tenant because he doesn't tell me, uh, say good Shabbos for me or even if he spit, uh, spit when, I, when I pass by. I cannot, I cannot uh, take him out, Tosmanoi. But we are talking. If it's not but not Tosmanoi, she may be fired. But it's an implied contract from every teacher, every melamed that is, he cannot fire him only in the end of the year, and you have to give him notice, much, much, good few months. Specifically here in the United States, and everybody goes in the summer. They go away in the camps, and they usually you hire a teacher for the next year. It's Pesach time. That's the proper time. And the, all the Botadirim say that you have to give him notice about Pesach time. What happens if you don't give notice? That's a different issue. But this is the accepted way how to do it. The same way here is, who cares what my husband's chosid is? There are people that have shalom bias, and the, the wife is one chosid, and chosid is there. <laughs> and the husband is a different rabbi. They have different uh, shoes, and they don't have a fight about it. They may have shalom bias. They may. It doesn't mean anything. When usually, when it's a harmony, who cares what? Who do you eat shrine from? But <laughs> from the other hand, if is the contract is over, it is over. What can I tell you? It's no force. You cannot force anybody to hold yeah. the teacher. You may fire him for no good reason either too. But it's no question a teacher or a Malamed, what is hired for a season, a year season, even if it's no contract, you cannot hire him with Tomsman. Rabbi Grouse, it's an honor having you on, and always very educational. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Have a nice day. Call to bye-bye. Joining us from New York is Yair Brook. He's a labor and employment attorney out of Brooklyn, and he recently sent a paper which was sent around the Internet. There was an article published that said basically that when Babov had it, the vision in its chassidus, they threw the girls out of school. And um, Yair was, is an attorney, his client is Babov, and he responded and he asked them to remove what he believed was untrue. News will tell you the story himself. Welcome, Yair, it's an honor to have you with us. Good morning. First off, um, I, while I completely understand that um, I was asked to be interviewed because of the letter that I drafted on behalf of Babov, I actually understood or believed that uh, um, this interview will, will not be about Bubba. Bubba does not know that I'm conducting this interview. They definitely did not ask me to uh, speak on their behalf. Um, but with, with that introduction, there was a group that left the Bubba community several years ago. It happened after the prior rather passed away. At the time, the daughters of that particular group um, were still enrolled and the Bab of a girls' school. And um, at that time, uh, Babov did not ask those girls to leave, even though there were many differences of opinion between the two groups. And not only that they did not ask those girls to leave, uh, that when the school year 
ended and those girls wanted to come back the following year, Bubba allowed them to come back without any issue. Furthermore, when that uh, other group uh, was able to establish their own girls' schools, uh, some girls uh, that were part of the other group chose to stay in in, in the in the Bubba girls' school and uh, and continue attending that school because of whatever their reasons were. They didn't want to start uh, in a new um, in a new school with new friends in a new environment. And in fact, when um, so, some of those girls even decided to uh, to stay until they graduated, and Bubba had no issue and no problem with that. Staying over the contents of the letter. So now. Let, let me ask you some questions, not as representing Baba, but just as somebody who obviously has some knowledge about these situations. In your opinion, as a, a labor attorney who sees a lot of strife, I imagine, is it possible to disagree and yet remain menschlich with each other? Of course. It's it's very possible to have disagreement and uh, and respect each other. I mean, in fact, um, attorneys that uh, engage in litigation can say that um, they can be very civil with the other side, even if they are um, they're, they're 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 disputing and litigating um, other matters. So there's really no contradiction. You can have different decision. And, and by the way, this is not necessarily a legal question at all. It's just a mental question. Um, you can have a difference of opinion, but nonetheless, still respect the other side. The whole the whole Mishnah is, I have to say, the 700 prakim in, in plus in you know in Mishnah and um, there's only one or two without a machlekes in all 700. And I find it hard to, dis- to believe that they went outside afterwards and they beat each other up. Okay, well, you know, our whole, our whole history is about debate and, and, and Elu Vielu, the real Kim Chaim. Let me ask you an, a, a legal question, which you'll tell me if you're comfortable as, answering. So I'm a school and there's a division in the Chesidus and I decide I do want to throw the other kids out. Whatever, without without commenting on whether the morality of it, that's not the question. Um, do you have a right to say? Um, do, do I, as a parent, have a right to say? Wait, you know, we live in the United States, right? We don't allow for discrimination based upon religion. My kid is in your school. He's Jewish. You know, they say Shema twice a day. They dive into the same thing. They believe this Rebbe influences them more than the other Rebbe. Would there be an issue with religious? Um, you have a school. Um, some kids, their parents want to go. They believe their way to, to, to serve Hashem is to a different Rebbe. You say, we're throwing you out because of that. Constitutionally, how would you argue this case? So, it, it's and again, I'm 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 just going to give this hagdama, this preamble. It's very very hard to argue cases in the abstract because every case has a different set of facts and circumstances. So um, I'm I'm going to answer your question, uh, but just just so uh, you understand that the listeners understand that this um, it's hard to really really answer a question in the abstract, and the reason is because the next thing that somebody's going to ask is or mention is that there's a contract that maybe parents signed at the beginning of the school year. And then I'm going to respond to that and say, well, let's see the contract. And since we don't have a contract, so it's, it's, um, it's difficult to really give a complete answer um, as, to, um, as to if the school has a right or doesn't have a right. But really, the, the, sta- the, statu- the, the relevant okay, statutory framework... Yeah, let me push back at you. Let's say the contract said... Um, if you change your race and you become, a, a, you decide you're a dark-skinned race, we have the right to throw you out. I mean, no court would recognize the validity of such an agreement. So can a contract say, 
um, if you change, you know, your religious modification in any way, that's for us a reason to throw you out. Or do you say, based on the fact that the United States does not allow for discrimination, it wouldn't be. So, look, the, the um, religious freedom is anchored in the First Amendment to the Constitution, right? And in general, the courts um, are reluctant from getting involved in these types of disputes. In fact, there's a doctrine that um, that if the courts follow, um, these type of disputes need to be deferred to a religious authority, a Bethden, um or or the equivalent of that in, in another religion. So, and, and by the way, that is exactly uh, what the schools and the school in your in your in your example will argue. They're going to claim that. Uh, we have a right to freedom of religion, and the First Amendment to the Constitution trumps whatever local um, state or city law you have. And I'm going to jump right into that, and I'm going to say that if you look at, you know, the, the relevant uh, statutory framework here in New York is the New York State Civil Rights Law, uh, specifically Article 79, and the New York State Executive Law, um, Article 296. And I can quote, um, uh, this is uh, uh, from the New York State Executive Law, and uh, it says that it shall be unlawful discriminatory practice for an educational institution to, institution to deny the use of its facilities to any person otherwise qualified or to per permit the harassment of any student or applicant. So, and, and, and this is exactly what what um, what the students would argue in such a situation. And on the other hand, you have um, the First Amendment to the Constitution. And obviously, when you have all the set uh, the set of facts and circumstances, that's how the court will come to such a conclusion. The question really boils down to is if that particular child student that's being asked to leave, um, is that because of a religious reason or is that because of something else? And that really is what, you know, how such a case would turn on. The, the real question is, does a secular court have the knowledge to even determine what is a religious question? Um, and that's why the courts really don't like, you know, they kind of shy away from these types of disputes and, and, and they try not to get involved. So you're saying the New York statute does not allow for discrimination based upon religion, but the, the First Amendment of freedom for religion, for religion would urge the courts not to get involved? Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the First Amendment allows for, for the freedom of religion. So this is where the school will argue and say that this is our religion and we can do whatever we want, and you can't get involved. And, so, um, so there can be no state cost that for discrimination based upon religion. In fact, they would say that state law has no validity because the First Amendment overrides it. Is that what you're saying? That would be the argument? Correct. That, that would be the argument of the school. The, and the, the, argument, the, first I Amendment. the counter argument would be is that the state rule is made, notwithstanding the First Amendment, is saying, yes, there is freedom of religion, but you, you cannot discriminate you know, we give you, you can, you're free to serve any, any type of religion you want, but you can't discriminate based on that. And it's not necessarily that the two rules, I mean, don't work hand in hand, which is how I imagine the directors right. of the law, the local law, that's what they would say, right? You could be Jewish, you could be Catholic, but you can't discriminate against somebody if they're not Catholic or if they, I mean, that's what they would argue, right? The difference right. between freedom now, and discrimination. Right. Now, obviously, um, you know what, what? What the child student or um, would argue in such a situation is that this is really not um, a question of religion; it's a question of affiliation. 
And now the question is if affiliation is something that's protected under the First Amendment. And and obviously the, the, the students would say that it is not protected under the First Amendment, and that's exactly the reason why these local laws here in New York, uh, the civil rights law and the executive law, were enacted to uh, protect activities of, of, of such kind of nature. I'm going to touch for one minute on the contract that gets signed between the parents and the school. And again, the child, um, whether he's a toddler or uh, or a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old, is still a minor. Um, and most of these schools, I can't say all, but most of them don't have those contracts signed with um, uh, with the child. They have it signed with the parent. And now the question is, could a parent even bind the child into this contract because the contract is between the parent and the school, not the child. Uh, now the child has a different again, right? How could they bind the child? Ex parte to the right, child. Now the, right? right. Now the, the child does have a contract with the school and this may be an implied contract or an unwritten contract where the child started the school year and he's entitled to finish the school year. Right. Um, and if the parents um uh, you know are affiliated now with another group the question is if the school is now allowed to punish the child. Now, there are other doctrines and principles that protect the child and give the child the right to, um, you know, to continue education. Um, there's, there's, um, there's case law that says that um, um, a child um, whose education gets interrupted um, suffers damage not only to his education but psychological damage, social damages, and so on. So there's many reasons why if a child going to be expelled from the school, that the school really uh, think about those ramifications before they do that. Can you think, um, Yair, of anything else our listeners would be interested in, like any other commentary you'd like to add to this? There's another area that I think would be relevant, especially coming from the labor and employment uh, area, that um, is not is not necessarily with school, but dealing with, uh, uh, with employment situations. And that is, um, let's say a person was part of a group and that person now changed his affiliation. Um, can that person uh, be subject to discipline or otherwise termination from his employer who's maybe affiliated with the first group? So, um, so let's just say, for example, you have a teacher that works in a school and that teacher ch- changed her affiliation or his affiliation, uh, can the school now go ahead and discipline that teacher or terminate him because that person changed his affiliation? And, and the answer to that question is it really depends on the type of job the employee does and it depends, um, and, and, and it depends on the change that was made. So, for example, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm going I'm to break this down um, a little further. Let's, um, let's not discuss affiliation. Let's talk religion. Let's say you have a teacher working in a Jewish religious school, and that teacher now becomes less religious. Um, can the school ask that teacher to, um, uh, to leave, to no, no, more, no longer be employed at, as a teacher at the school? Um, and um, and I, I, um, the, the answer to that is that um, it really depends what what change the teacher made. Um, but if it's a real change that students uh, that students uh, uh, could get influenced by, so the answer is yes, you could terminate that teacher's job. But let's say, for example, uh, an employee works at a real estate office, and now that employee changes their religious affiliation, or even or even um, become less religious, or change their religion altogether. Um, in that situation, it would not be okay to 
uh, discipline to terminate that employee. Now, if you have a, um, you know, an African-American janitor that wants to work in a religious school, um, you know, who changes his affiliation and becomes a, uh, unreligious or changes religion, that is uh, obviously would not be grounds to terminate or or um, uh, discipline that particular employee because it doesn't matter. And that employee is not, a, is not an authority type of figure who's influencing the students. So it really, really depends. I, I got an interesting question uh, just the other day uh, from uh, from worker who was asked to um, show up at work right after Shabbos, and the business opened up immediately after Shabbos. The only problem is that this particular person um, kept Rebbeinu Tam, which was a later time uh, 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 for Shabbos to come out, and um, and because of that, that person was disciplined. Uh, because that person kept Rabbeinu Tam. And the question uh, that I had was, can a religious Jew discriminate uh, uh, religiously, uh, based on religious grounds, against another religious Jew because uh, that religious Jew keeps a higher standard of, uh, of, of Judaism, if it's considered a higher standard or a different type of standard? Um, and I believe the answer is yes. Um, I think that that individual has a claim. So I think I think the question doesn't stop at the school, but really, really goes more beyond the, the school and into other areas as well. Oh yeah, yeah. This was a, a fabulous uh, primer for us lay people. I'm sure you can go on about this for hours and hours, but we thank you for your time. Sure, absolutely. You're welcome. We have the honor of joining us from Yerushalayim is Rabbi Beryl Wine. He's the Rav of the Beis Knesset Hanasi in Yerushalayim. He's the director of the Destiny Foundation. He's the author of so many books on Jewish history. We've all listened to him. We've read his books. Welcome, Rabbi Wine. Thank you. Pleasure. We have a new, a new wave in, in Hasidus now, that when a Hasidus creates a, a new rabbi, it splits, there's a... A divergent group, we attack that group with tremendous ferocity. We will expel their, throw their kids out of our schools. We will, you know, not allow parents to talk to children. Siblings cannot talk to each other anymore. They're invited to the weddings. Nobody from the Hasidus will show up. And my question is, as a historian, you know, to me, Hasidus has always been about, it is a new movement, relatively, that came about when people were frustrated with the service of the, of the Rabbi Nishel that was then available, such as when the Baal Shem came along, this Nagdas, but it created something fabulous. When, when, when Pshischa came along, it created a whole new service. When Ishbitz came along, when... Rijin, and now we have a new thing. Somebody comes along, we, we try to destroy it and quelch it, but with a ferocity that's never been seen, that I've never read about. Have you ever seen historically the ferocity that we, they attack? You cannot talk to your child anymore. Has this existed prior in your experience? Yes. It has. Unfortunately, okay. yes. Can you tell us where, when? Chisri itself. The older rabbin, they took Chisri to the entire in front of the after room. They want to throw him out of the Jewish people. Yeah, but you're still a chassana. But we don't see that if your brother went to Pshischa, you could never talk to him again. I want to Rabbi Eger went to become a chassid. They, they say uh, uh, his father, Shlom Eger, said shiva for him. Interesting. And, and he was not allowed to talk to his siblings they anymore? He never talked to them. He was out. So you're saying this, this has a prior history, this, this ferocious... Uh, well, I want to tell you, the Tolmer Rebbe, the David Tolmer, in the 1870s, so he said that he had a home, he had a dream. And in the dream, the Malach told him 
That is, you shouldn't say Kakosu al Yad but you should say Koomur al Yad Okay, so he came to his chassidim and he said, from now on, we're going to say Kakoomur and not Kakosuv. So the other chassidim uh, said, you know, that he has no right to change the nusa. Who's he? And so they would stop you on the street and say, are you a Kakosuv Dikid or a Koomur Dikid? <laughs> they did not intermarry. They didn't have anything to do with each other because of Kakosuv and Koomur. Fascinating. So you know, it's regretted. I don't, I don't know the exact circumstances you're talking about, and I don't want to know. But unfortunately, unfortunately, we are given to such disputes, and especially you know matters of succession to brothers, all sorts of things. This has all happened before. It's all, 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 you know. So, do you think that? It's a good thing. It's a Hasidus protecting its franchise. Or do you think it's a bad thing because it, it puts a blanket on the ability to grow? History has shown that uh, no matter that Elohim Yavakish Nirdov, the easiest way to make the new thing grow is to oppose it. Well, that's a very powerful point. But let me just go back to my question. Do you think that um, it's, it's more important to, in other words, if you could, if you were on top and you could say, well, I'm, I'm the God, I'm going to make the decision. Let's stomp out anything new because we have to protect existing communities, existing Hasidus, or would you say, look, when something new is growing, it means that people are searching for something different. Which of the two sides do you have an affinity to? There always is a search, and there always will be something new. You cannot, with the ideas, the ideas come in under the doorstep. You can't stamp it out. You can try to do it, but you can't. I mean, Stalin couldn't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. How can we do it? Well, but we could control it if you have the mice in it. You have the real, so have the real estate. You say, so then the new one has to make their own mice in, and that's all. And that, that's what happens. Rabbi Wine, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, you should be much sweeter and everything. Amen. Thank you very much, Rabbi Wine. Call to. Call to. Bye-bye. Joining us from Eretz Yisrael is Yehuda Geber. He learned in the mirror for 13 years. He's a historian. For the last 10 years, he's been taking guides through Europe to show them all the Mekayimah Sakadashim, the uh, other sites, you know, Jewish, we just have such a rich history in Europe. He's also the, uh, he also has a podcast called Jewish History Soundbites. Welcome, Rabbi Yehuda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and privilege to be here. So Yehuda, there have been, Hasidus really comes from sort of division and machlekes. I mean, starting with the Baal Shem, when Chassidus started, it was a new movement that separated itself from the rest of what we today call the Lipsisha world, right? Um, following it, there have been many splits in Hasidus. Um, just looking back at, let's say, uh, you know, um, Gerd, originally it started off the Yid HaKadosh left Lublin. There's a debate how acrimonious it was, but it was certainly a split. Shisha itself was quite an acrimonious split from the rest of Hasidus, as the famous Asti Lachasana, where they tried to attack the Rebbe Rebbeinu in public, etc. It was quite disliked by the rest of Hasidim. So, I mean, there have been many splits, etc., in Hasidus. Could you talk about some of the, the history of some of the division in Hasidus, which 
in many cases turned out to be wonderful. I mean, Shiska turned out to be the Hasidus of Poland, so it was split from the rest of Hasidus. It found a new path forward. So in a non-pejorative manner, the split of the Hasidus from the rest of the world turned out to be wonderful. Hasidus, my father, Chalam Rachel, used to say, save Yiddishkeit. Could you talk about some of the history of, you know, the splits in Hasidus, going back to the beginning and on? Sure. So, so like you said, uh, that ultimately, you know, these splits, um, whether there was bad blood at the time, but many of them ultimately just enriched the movement and enriched Yiddishkeit. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good thing to talk about. We're not necessarily talking about disputes. Uh, there's a difference between, uh, then between disputes and, and splits. Uh, you know, there's, uh, splits could very often be without any active dispute and very, could be very smooth and amicable without hard feelings. Sometimes it was accompanied by tension. Um, and sometimes it was a full-fledged dispute, a full-fledged, uh, even warfare. So it really depended on, on each one. Um, now, so there's there were really three types of splits uh, that we can talk about that took place throughout the history of the movement. Uh, there was one type which would be what we would we're more familiar with today, which is you know relatively more common today than it used to be, which would be a classic inheritance feud between either siblings who, who after a, an illustrious father who was a rebel who passed away, or occasionally in the earlier times it was between a leading student, a leading chassid, and the child of the rebel. That would be one category. Another category was, was disputes or splits between rival dynasties, rival Hasidic groups, which, uh, which actually, ironically, were the most, those historically were the most, uh, the, you know, the most active, most violent, I would say, uh, in, in, uh, as opposed to, we would think from looking around today that perhaps the inheritance ones were, that's not the case, uh, the ones that were left the most, uh, you know, uh, prominent, uh, you know, stories and, and, and sometimes pretty uh, active disputes were these rivalries between different groups. And then, like you just mentioned with Chisra, there's plenty of um, uh, splits within a Hasidus. Um, so there's, there's, e- each one has to be examined on its own. So you have the inheritance feuds you'd have uh, from the beginning. You'd have, uh, when the Alter Rebbe, we're going to have you test Kisley next week, so we can start with that. The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya was Nifter, so there was, there was a bit of a rivalry who would inherit him. The dynastical principle wasn't uh, accepted yet as the only way of inheriting. Uh, you had a Talmud. Baron Halevi of Strashella, Davide exactly. Halevi. Yeah. Right. And his son, the Mitlareva, uh, so from Bagbar. So who would become the next one? You had, um, you know, when you mentioned Pshischa about the, the fact that it left Lublin, which is the other type of split, but you had even when the Yiddakadish, or again when Rabsim Chabonim was Nefter, so we know famously that the Yiddakadish is Nefter, so Rabsim Chabonim becomes the Rebbe, and Rabsim Chabonim was Nefter, so the Kotzka becomes the Rebbe. But they both had sons. Uh, Ram Yaakov, I think, was uh, Ram Meisher, but Ram Yaakov, forget his, his full name, was the son of the Yiddish He leads a very small contingent. The majority goes to the Talmud of Simchabonim. And the same thing with Simchabonim is Nefter. The majority goes to Kask, a small uh, contingent stays by his son, Rabbi Rachmiel. So there's these, these small splits. You have, after, after the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad is Nefter, so... There's a, a big split. Uh, again, it wasn't a big dispute. It wasn't a big fight uh, or anything, but it was split. There was Kapus, there was Nizhin, there was Liadi, there was a bunch of other uh, uh, branches of Chabad, and Lubavitch had the youngest son, the Maharash. And the same thing when the Chnabla Magid 
was Mr. in 1837, or Matul Chernobyl. So there's eight eight sons. All of them start another branch. One stays in Chernobyl, and there's Skver, and Tolma, and Cherkas, and Trisk, and Rachem and Makov, and Karshchev, and, and it goes on and on and on. And there, there was actually tension. It was a bit of a feud between the siblings. Okay. And we also, by the way, going back a little bit, when the Kotzke Rebbe um, was Rebbe, um, Ishbis family we split out of Kotsk. Right. So that was a real split. Uh, that was that was Mamish. I mean, quite, quite acrimonious yeah. too. Right. Right. You mentioned uh, before that it's questionable how acrimonious the Pshischa, uh split was from Lublin, and it is debated among historians still today. And uh, it even goes one generation back. Uh, um, the Chayza left uh, Lezhensk and started his own Chatzin. Uh, so he, he started Lansuk, which is 15 minutes from Lezhensk, while the Rebbe Rebbe was still alive. And he was called Mitzikul Lansutta. He only be called, came to be called the Chayz afterwards. And there's a big question, was was it with the bracha of the Rebbe Rebbe or did he do it on his own? And there was some sort of tension there. Was it a split, or was that the Rebbe Rebbe sent him to do it? And there's no question about it that the most tense split ever was the Kotsk Ishbitz one. Well, he, uh, writes, because he writes about his years in his Agdama, he writes about his years in, in Kotsk, I sat in a, a dungeon all his years that he was. So he obviously wasn't a happy camper. Happened on no. some, I believe it happened on some Chastaira that spot. And it remained a very uh, not friendly situation between what afterwards was Radzin with Kenton Nezhvitz and, and Ger and Sachachev, the ones that you know stayed with Kutz, remained for decades. And then again, you had, most famously, before the war, you had a Garen Alexander. Rafut, the one told me, he said there was a, a big apartment house, a big building, I think he said an apartment house in Barsha, and it, uh-huh. had, two, it had two minyanim in it. It had a Garen minion and an Alexander minion. At one time, the... Uh, the uh, I don't know, remember which one it was. Let's say, we'll say the Alexander Minion didn't have a coin for, uh, for Duchening. So they sent the Shtech over to the Ger. Could he, could he, uh, or vice versa, could have been the other way around. Could I, could I, could we borrow your coin? So supposedly, it's a, he said it as a joke. He said, so the coin said, I'm happy to come over and bench, but we can zugen be a hava. Excellent. He said, So here's my question to you. Um, so we have we, we've named probably if you go through this uh, I don't know almost ten different splits long history right starting back right. with Hashem have we ever seen a, a split where kids get thrown out of schools where it's look if you join the other Hasidus your kids won't be ever allowed to talk to you again your brothers or brothers-in-law will never be allowed to come to your simchas or talk to you if we catch them talking to you they'll get thrown out um, your store will be boycotted and closed down if somebody goes in and chops. Have we ever seen where it's basically, if you go there, it's like you have, in effect, become like, basically a mullik. I mean, I don't know why. We, we, you're dead. You're dead to us. Has, has anything like this ever happened before? Okay, so that's a, that's a very, very good question. And, and, and I have two-part answer. One, number one, by a split within a Hasidus, like by a Yerusha or, or one of these splits that we mentioned, it, as far as I know, we haven't. And But in the... Rivalries when when two rival like in the San Sadiger, which was not a split, it was just a war. There you had that. They were in Cherem. They put each other in Cherem, and it was serious business. Because you say in a split in the Hasidus, to your knowledge, has that happened before? Right now, why not? So let me explain why not. There's three major differences between between the way Hasidus is built today, post-war, and the way they were in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Number one is because a very simple geographical thing. The, the solution to all splits then 
was you pick up and you move to a new location. You establish a new court in a new town, essentially a new dynasty. So that was a solution, and it always worked. And therefore, the only thing that happened afterwards was that there was maybe turf wars. There was territorial, like what's your play, what's your jurisdiction, what's mine? But beyond that, there was no, meaning I have my place, you have your place. There was an endless amount of areas in Galicia and Ukraine and Poland, and, and there was, you know, you just pick yourself up, you got a new place, you got a new area. Very often, uh, um, you know, it, you know it's, it was always charismatic leadership. It, it was, so if you, were, if you were more charismatic, then you attracted more followers. And it didn't matter if, if, if your younger brother or your other rival had the old court and the old base measures, you built a new one and a new base measures. You raised more money because you have a, a, a new Hasidim in a new area. And, and you built up another court. And you can even surpass in fame and prestige the other one if you were good enough. And it was all based on your own success at rebuilding. Now, today, that doesn't exist. Why? Because today we live in an urban environment. You're kind of limited to where you're allowed to go. You're allowed to go to your Shalim B'nai or New York City or the New York area, tri-state area. So that's, that's where you're pretty much limited to. So you can't move anywhere else. Not only that, there's another thing. The second thing is, is that we've made holy the names of the towns of Eastern Europe. There's no new names anymore. We've run out of names. Once there's a Holocaust, once we moved out of Eastern Europe, once the places that they were became holy and Kaddish because they were Kiddush Hashem and because they were part of the old lost world. So you have to use those names. In, in, the, in, in the 19th century, you move to the next town, you become a new name, you start over from scratch, and you, and, you're, and, and you start a new brand. You can't start new brands anymore. So you're fighting over the, the existing name. And the third point, and the very crucial point, is is meisters, is institutions. Pre-war, until the last generation or two before the war, when it started to change, but for sure in the 19th century, institutions were primarily still the purview of the kahal. Now, sometimes a rebbe could control the kahal. Either he himself was also a rav, or even if not, but very often he controlled certain kahal. But Essentially, the kahal had institutions of each and every town, and the local children went to the local cheder, and the local whatever, you know, was, was the chaver kadisha, and, and, and so on and so forth. So the idea, like you described in your question, of, of accepting children to schools and not accepting the schools was almost irrelevant. It never happened. It never could happen. It started to change immediately before the war, but it really got a boost after the war, because they're rebuilding from scratch in new countries, and it was heroic. These great, great rebels who survived the war, who escaped or whatever, they come to Israel, they come to, to, to the United States, and they rebuild from scratch. So they rebuild, part of what they rebuild is a full-fledged institutional environment. And now the inheritors, two, three generations later, control a mass of institutions which almost never existed. It did exist in, in certain instances. And in fact, we have a very interesting story of, of how they divided these institutions when there was a split in Hasidus in the 19th century, and that is in Saudi Garen Bayan. Uh, there was the Malchus, the Malchus of Saudi Garen, like the Rizhina. And whenever Ram Yankov of Saudi Garen, who was the son of the Rizhina, the oldest surviving son of the Rizhina, was the, the Rebbe for, for over three decades following his father's passing. He passed away in 1883. His two surviving sons is Rabbi Yitzchak Friedman and Rabbi Israel Friedman. And they jointly run the Chatzah together for several years, as astounding as that may sound. That didn't work out in long term. That was some tension between the two and between the followers of the two. And several years after that, they divide up the empire. And there's a lot to divide. So, so there is institutions. There is a big chutzah. 
So I think it went through like a girl of some sorts, but the Chatzar and Sadiger, which is, you know, significant, goes to the younger brother, Rabbi Yisrael. He becomes the next Sadiger Rebbe. And the older brother, Rabbi Yisrael, has to leave. What he gets out of the deal is the, the responsibility for Kailul Valen, which is the old Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael, includes the Nissen Beck, the Ferris Yisrael Shul in the old city. It also included the Lag Bayim or Hadlaka in Maron, which their father had purchased from the Sephardic community elders in Maron many years before. So they still own that till today. And this Yitzchak has to leave Sadiger, which is a suburb of Chernovitz, and moves to another suburb of Chernovitz called Bayan, where he establishes his regal court in the beginning of the Bayan dynasty, and he's the Pacharitzko Bayan. So you have I, I want to make sure I heard that right. Bian bought the rights to the Hadlaka in Miron? No, no, no. The Sadiger. Bian inherited it. Inherited it. But Sadiger bought the rights to the, uh, to the Hadlaka yeah, in Miron. from the old Sadi Rabbanim in Miron in the 1800s. So, is, so to summarize, you're saying that before the war, it was not about real estate. There weren't huge you know, ownerships of dozens of maestas and buildings and fee simples or, or leaseholds, etc. It was, it was a chasidus, and today it's become much more institutional and corporate in a way. Is, is that fair to what you're saying? Exactly what I'm saying. So, you know, it's so ironic because, you know, when, when the, when the Ger Rebbe, the first Ger Rebbe, the Chedusha Rim, became Rebbe, if, and this is brought, the story is brought in Moira and Agayla. Excuse me if I'm not saying it 100% correctly. I saw the story 30 years ago. But he says he got up on the table the first Shabbos, and he said the beginning of Hasidus starts where there's a tremendous Cyrus and people come together and they want to hear Dvar Hashem, etc. He says, and then they buy buildings. And the Satan comes and he chaps away the whole Osiris and it becomes, the, the whole Osiris ends up in the walls of a building. <laughs> Which is so ironic to how you're describing what's happening, the differences with the... Uh... So let me ask you, given, I asked you this as a historian, if, if you could answer this. Um, do you think it would be contemplated by, I mean, starting from the beginning, by the Baal Shem or any of the great Rebbes that, you know, the antecedents, right? Who those who followed him, and um, whose the purpose of Hasidus is really about people who were searching for a different way to serve Kaviyachal, serve their Shalom, People who were searching for different, you know, new Hasidus, to grow, etc. Starting with them, going all the way down to Pshistu, which split the world and became the elite and the not elite and all that. Was it ever contemplated that it would turn into sort of areas? And I've spoken to people involved where they say, you know, I would like to go serve this one or that one, but my kids will get thrown out of school. My wife won't be able to talk to me. My, my in-laws will, will break off with me. Has, they feel like prisoners or hostages, was this ever contemplated that if you renew, if you try to split, we will throw your kids out of the school, we will throw your daughters out of the base Yaakov. If your children are with us, they will not be allowed to speak to you. And like I, I said, no, except during the, war, except, oh, the wars between the uh, and, and here's an example. Um, a letter was published recently. Uh, the attorney's name is Yair Brook. There was an article printed that when the two Bubbles split, Bubbles threw the kids out of the school. This guy sent a letter, dear editor, to uh, the paper, cease and desist. Basically, it's a two-page letter. It's too long to read on the air, but he said, Bubbles never threw a child out. It never would throw a child out, notwithstanding the fact that we disagree and it was a very bitter split from the other faction. And if you don't retract it, right, we're going to hold you liable for the damages you're doing, but etc., by a false accusation. Not a single child was thrown out. So it's, we've entered into a new era where we can use this tremendous power of Moistus 
You know, your wives work by us, your husbands work by us. Your kids are in the kindergarten, your daughters are in the base Yaakov. You have a store in town where we can close down this renewal by using all these institutional, meisters, corporate real estate forces, right? So the question yeah. to you is, is that a bad thing? Do we look at it and we say, on one hand, we say renewal is fabulous. Look, look the whole the whole pshischa came out of renewal. Hasidus came out of the demands, the search for renewal. So mm-hmm. renewal on one hand is great. On the other hand, you know, once institutions are established and people, you know, communities have, they, they create sort of mini kahillists and they have rights of way and people come attached, should we say communities have a right to defend their franchise? That's, that's the question. Yeah, I would think, I would think that, uh, that the community, not only do they have a right to, they probably want to, um, and, and, and they'll, they'll, you know, whether, whether they, whether they do it by, you know, legal or kosher means is not my business. I don't know. But the idea that a kahila or, or a fetus or anything would defend itself and its institutions is natural. That, that's just what happens. But I think that what we've seen is that that tension, meaning there's, there's not, now, now you can't take yourself for granted. Now you have to defend yourself. You're saying you want to defend yourself. You're saying you have a right to defend yourself. You also have to because because now you have an opposition, and that has to that creates t- the tension. And now both sides will have to renew themselves. And Nefesh Chaim had to have been written because it, because he opposed Hasidus. And if it, and if he didn't, we would never have had the Nefesh Chaim. So he had a right to defend the establishment. He was defending the establishment with the Nefesh Chaim, right? Yeah, but that's um, not what I'm saying. I'm not obviously every institution has a right to defend itself. Do you think? that its need to defend itself should rise to the level what would be seen by many as terrorism. In other words, so the, the argument would be as well, you know, you can't force somebody which God to serve. You can't force somebody to say your Rebbe is, you know, if, if he just doesn't like him. You can't force him. If somebody wants to learn this way and the other one wants to learn the other way, like, you can't force them. That's one argument. And of course, you know, at a certain point, you know, feel free to serve the Rebbe the way you want. Right? Or do we say, you know, if we open up the gate, maybe the institutional Hasidus would cause so much havoc, it could potentially collapse or something. So they have a right even to resort to terrorism to keep their people. Like, how do you balance how it's, we understand the tension, the new and the old, as well as that, but how far does a Hasidus have a right to defend itself, uh, to defend its franchise? That is the debate. Um, it's a good question. I don't know if I have the uh, the capability of answering. <laughs> so, h- how is it looked at historically? Do we say the reigns of terror against Sadiger uh, were looked at kindly or not? The meaning, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one one uh, good indicator: the fact that the entire story is censored today. Uh, which show that uh, both sides are quite ashamed of it and would rather not dredge it up and, and bring it up because it's very uncomfortable. In other words, there's a lot of re- regret as to what the uh, means were used and the misunderstandings that, uh, that caused it. And uh, therefore, they'd, they'd rather bury the whole story altogether. Well, Rabbi Huda, thank you very much for this most uh, really enlightening and educational interview. Thank you. Halt Take care. Bye-bye. Joining us from Lakewood, New Jersey, is Mordechai Weinberger. He's a psychotherapist for 18 years. He's written three bestsellers for Art Scroll about mental health. He writes weekly in the Yated for the last 17 years on their mental health column. He has a weekly radio program and a podcast with 1.5 million listeners a year. That's a lot. Um, he's also one of the few, um, I guess, Litvisha who actually speak on Kolmovasser. 
right? So he's really very out there. Welcome, Rav Mordechai. Welcome, Rav David. Thank you. So talk to me. You have a, a parent. Um, they say, we don't want to pay um, tuition. We'd rather go to Pesach vacation, spend the money, whatever it may be. You have a school that says, we want to throw out a bunch of kids for political money, no, whatever the reason may be. What happens to a child who's thrown out of school in the middle of a school year? When you become an adult, it's very, I shouldn't say, but for many people, it's easy to say, it's just, I just don't care. It doesn't interest me. Bless you. You have your opinion. I have mine. Now I'm, I'm 12 years old. What happens to me when I get called out, thrown out of school? What, what is the impact on the child? So I'd like to share with you a real story, and I'll just change information to keep it confidential, but I've worked on this many times. And imagine a, let's say, 10-year-old boy where, for whatever reason, the parents are dysfunctional, they're not able to cover tuition, they're making, they're not even going to Florida, they're not spending money other places, they just don't have money. And the school's trying to work with the parents, could you give us something? Can you work anything? And the father is, let's say, unfortunately, a very uncomfortable person that when they call for money, yells and screams at them, degrades them, and... The mother is a, a poor, timid woman that just can't say anything, and if she works, whatever she works goes straight to the husband. And it's a real dysfunctional home, and they've got, Bar Hashem, several kids. And I had the trust of working with one of the children when another family member said, we just got to save them from the psychological damage that is going on at home. And one of the big tragedies that I was working with one of the children was exactly the story that you shared, seeing the embarrassment on the first day when the school that the parents send, and all the kids are going, how can we go, Tati, we can't go to school, and he'll get on that bus, and they're going, Mommy, what? we don't know if we got, you know, we don't have that list, that paper, or whatever you needed that sometimes gets sent in the registration that we can go, and sure enough, the mother says, Tati said, go, you gotta go, and the entire night before, the entire morning, they are nervous, there is that silent fear in the room, and they get on the bus, then they get into class, and then sure enough, the teacher sees the, that list of the name and tells her, um, so-and-so, you need to go to the office. And then they go to the office, and they're waiting there for like an hour, then with their siblings, and then finally they go, we have to call up your parents. And the mother knows not to answer the phone, because when you see the school, they know what's happening. And then the school actually sent the kids home. What is the effect of being shamed? Bingo. So now let's take there. So one of the greatest traumas is that even when this kid went back to school, because the family members, let's say aunts, uncles, got together and raised money, but throughout the year, as it is many times when people get involved, they don't always pay on time, or sometimes this one had a hard time, this one said, I had enough paying, or I'm paying, I'm helping out the tuition for four or five years, but now I'm marrying off a kid. So this, these kids, this family, they were sent home almost two or three times a year, and sometimes they were even home for a couple of days, till the family members felt the pressure, like, oh, they realized, oh, they, we gotta do something. So these kids, not only is it being sent home that's traumatizing, it's also no, not knowing the safety. So what would the future bring? So let's go to your question, first of all. Any, any person at a certain age, part of the psychological development of an adult or of a child, which we get to adulthood, and that's a healthy level, is a dialectic, two opposites. There is one part that you have to have a self-esteem. I know who I am. I care about who I am. I know my value. I know my weaknesses. There's also another component, polar opposite, that is we want to fit into society. We want to be respected. We want to be liked. And imagine someone just has the self-esteem part, but they don't care about anyone else. That's almost a narcissist. That's, I don't care about anyone. I'll do what I want. 
they'll say things, they will be rude, they will can even hurt people and not feel bad. So that's where we have the balance of feeling that we want to fit into the world and we want to belong and we want to get along. On the other hand, if someone is just trying to fit into the world and whatever they want, then they lose their identity and they don't have an identity. So that's sort of the concept that we have in Perkeyavas of Me'ena Nili Mili. So first you got to have a self-esteem and at the same time, Kishani laughs me, if I just have myself, money. So there's a, a dialectic, a two opposite levels, polar opposites that Hashem always creates, that we need both of them in each individual. And if someone has more on one side of the spectrum of whichever way, there are benefits to that, but there are also challenges. So now let's take it to a kid. A kid judges their life, especially teenagers, on where is my social standing. And that is, there's a, a lot of different studies showing that, that the developmental stage for a teenager is about identity, finding out their identity of who they are. And a large way of the way teenagers feel is how my friends look at me. And one of the greatest pains that's out there is for a teenager especially is shame. That's why teenagers will almost do anything just not to get the shame. It's a social pressure for teenagers because they want to be good because that's the, or they want to be the best because that's how they get their standing as where they are is what makes them. And then if they don't have that, is very, very dangerous because what happens is a person can now develop, I'm a failure. I could never succeed in this world. I don't have a place. Now, if a kid is kicked out of school, if a kid feels, and it's not just kicked out of school, but that's a bigger example, generally kids will be hurt, their self-esteem will be in shambles, and they're going to feel that no one likes me, and the biggest part is no one's there to defend me. That's one of the greatest pains when you work with kids that are bullied, is no one defended me. It means the whole world, in their mind, what that means is the whole world's against me. Because if someone was with me, then they would have stood up to defend me. So talk to me. Have you seen kids who were shamed, who it impacted their lives seriously, like years or even decades later? Give us, a, give us a story without names, obviously. So um, the hardest and the most saddest stories are to work with people that are unfortunately on drugs trying to overdose. And these are people that are real professionals. In fact, AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, was started by a medical doctor. He's a medical doctor and an alcoholic. And he goes, something is wrong here. I made it to the top of the, like, officially, like the top of the rung. I'm a doctor. And yet... I'm falling apart. My insides, I feel horrible. And those are what, what's happening. When you've got professionals or people of the world going, why are they addicted to things? Why are they doing horrible behaviors? Why are they so mean? Why, why are they so down? I see this all the time. As a therapist, I'm working with, with people that are very successful on the outside. And on the inside, their life is falling apart. And when you start just crawling in there, you just ask a simple question. Who do you feel you are? Not what the world sees you. Who do you feel you are? And many times I go, I'm really a failure. And I just ask, why do you feel you're a failure? And again, as a therapist, we don't look at people on the outside strappings. We go, what's going on on the inside? Why do you feel like a failure? And they go, well, I failed in school. Or so, okay, but now you're a success. Yeah, but if people would know that I was a failure, they would know I'm not successful. Ramara, why does embarrassment, shame, as a child or as a teenager, hurt us so much more deeply than when we're adults? Phenomenal question, by the way. That, that's 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 deep, and you say this thing. So let's let's understand. Imagine there is a tree that is growing, and the side of a tree is a self-esteem, my value, 
And with this value, Hashem is going to throw challenges at us where we'll be making mistakes. And how are you going to overcome those mistakes? Will you be able to apologize and will you still feel value? Then you're going to be successful. Are you going to be haughty? Are you going to say I'm the best? Or will you be able to say, no, I have value, but the other person also has value? Then you're going to have people that might actually hurt you. How are you going to respond to that? If you have a value, then you can say, okay, I'm hurt. I don't want to be around that person, but I don't have to destroy them. So self-esteem is the essence with Chenuch on how to have who you are when challenges, successful or, or negative challenges hit us or affect us, and we're able to weather that and we're able to go back to peacefulness and to happiness because we have a self-esteem. Shame is saying, I am worthless. If you would know who I am, you will never want to be around me. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not. I feel worthless. I feel I'm horrible. I feel that I wouldn't want to be around myself. So you definitely don't want to be around me. And just to take it a step further, let's say when kids especially are bullying, it is so sad to see that here in the United States, we had about two years ago, a seven-year-old kid took his own life just because he was bullied because he was shamed. Now, when that's in there and it's not discussed and it's not worked through, it's not processed, the tree is growing. And inside the person says, you just don't know me. Now they could smile on the outside and everyone thinks they're successful and inside they are, are taking medication for antidepressants and just therapy, just talking about things aren't enough because their very core is, I am a piece of shame. Saying that as a child, and why as a child is that more, more powerful than, or to a teenager than it is to an adult? Because adults, if you were raised, if there was some level of a foundation of a yesoi, then when you're hurt, you might be able to open up to someone, you might be able to share. Children don't have the adult capacity to share it with people, so the only one they can share it with is their parents. That's the only ones that they have, and siblings. And, very, and they won't share these personal stuff with friends. You don't see. So if they have that shame and they're not able to share it at home or to have an adult, which will be the parents, help them process and go, oh, this isn't called shame, this is called normal. So imagine a kid gets a 70 on the test and he goes, but oh, the whole class got higher than me. And you don't the parent to say, I know, but we had a wedding this week. Like we had Shevabrachas. It's normal. You getting a 70 is brilliant. You're talented. Go, oh. And then the parent shares about their own, their own stuff. Yeah, you know, I got a whole list of things. I had two clients that yelled at me like I was behind and my boss yelled at me and it helps the kid process. Then you realize, oh, this isn't shame. This is normal. So there are times in life where you'll do less and they get the reassurance from the parents and you see these crying eyes and then after speaking to the parents a couple of minutes that hug and a kiss, they're jumping from joy. So adults have an ability to express to other adults if they do have that ability, then it can be processed. But children, where they don't have yet that force field, they don't have that shield to be able to handle life, they now conclude their tree of shame is being watered with each mistake that happens. And if it's a huge level of shame, like a huge dose of shame that was just put into the seeds, they were just watered by this, by this huge dose of shame, it confirms that they are worthless. When Chazal said, you know, somebody's mevazah Yes, absolutely. I've never seen people take their lives for this. I know someone that was never taking drugs, a very successful person, very connected all over, and supposedly in the world they said he was nifter at a young age from a heart attack, and I know the true information that this person was was walking around always feeling horrible, always feeling that he's not worth it.
because he was shamed? He was shamed. He walked around, came from a dysfunctional home where there was a lot of yelling and screaming, and he was an older child, and obviously the oldest, but like from the two, three older ones, and everything that went through was his fault. And he walked around with no matter what's his fault. So while he's helping people, and he was someone that was, I, I would consider him like a, a very special person that helped so many people. He was walking around with whoever he couldn't help and whoever he didn't do. So the shame the shame killed him, you believe? Shame and guilt. So he went to drugs and it was an assignment that no one should see. And like, yeah, no one knows and it's not a problem and he's managing it and the wife was complaining and the kids were noticing that he was off, but no one knew what, only his wife knew that he was that. And unfortunately, he actually was clean for about a year, which was great and then he had a tough moment and the shame and the guilt was so heavy he killed himself yeah he died from that so to go back to your question about shame if a person is shamed if a person does not have themselves if they don't have someone helping you process shame can is one of the core emotions that will ruin everything in a person from their business to their marriage to their children to even their own very life especially their yiddishkeit especially yiddishkeit well ramordechai thank you very much for your time that was a really fabulous explanation of what's going, what happens. Thank you. Hatzlacha.